turn to Romans and chapter 7. We continue this morning our studies in Romans and we come to the last section this morning of Romans 7, that is verses 13 to 25. Now we have been looking at Paul's letter to the Romans for several months. We have seen that Paul is here expanding his gospel to the Romans in preparation for a planned visit. This was written in the winter of AD 57-58 and he was planning in the not too distant future probably either in AD 58 or 59 to pay them a visit on his way to Spain. However, as we know from reading Acts his intentions were or rather had to be put to one side because God had other ideas and so his plans went completely awry he was arrested but he eventually did make it to Rome but courtesy of the Roman Empire in chains so he's writing to prepare the way to explain to them what his gospel is so there'll be no misunderstanding I'll just mention here in passing Roman Catholicism teaches that um, Peter moved to Rome and became the first bishop of Rome in about AD 45. If that were the case, why is it Paul bothers writing to them at all? And why is it that Paul doesn't mention Peter once in this letter? I mention this because of a conversation with a Roman Catholic recently who was very insistent upon this point that Peter was the first bishop of Rome. There is in fact no evidence at all in the scriptures or outside that Peter even went to Rome. It's one of their many myths. So he's writing this letter to explain to them the gospel. And he begins in chapter 1 to explain to them what the gospel is. And he begins not by saying to them that God loves you. He begins by saying that God is angry with you. And he then spends 63 or 64 verses from chapter 1 verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20 explaining and expounding the fact that men are sinners in need of salvation. All men, everywhere, without exception, the immoral, the moral and the religious are under the condemnation of God because of sin. There are no exceptions to this. He then, in the following six verses, in Romans 3, expounds the gospel. That we are made right with God, not on the basis of what we do, but on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. And all we have to do is to believe it. And it's that simple. And you get many people who say, it can't be that simple. There must be something I have to do. And Paul says, no. There's nothing that you have to do. Just believe. That's why the gospel is so wonderful. God has done everything that is necessary for us to be saved. All we have to do is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He then in chapter 4 shows that this is no new idea that he's had. That this is indeed based thoroughly upon the Old Testament because both Abraham and Isaac, the two great heroes of Israel, of the Jewish nation, they were both made right with God, not on the basis of what they did, but on the basis of what they believed. 
I meant David. Abraham and David. In chapter 5, he then moves on and begins to speak of the blessings that arise from being made right with God by what we believe, and that is that we have peace with God. We know peace in our hearts because God has given us his Holy Spirit. He then goes on and says that we have great blessings from the assurance of knowing that we will stand with God justified on the day of judgment because if God did all this for us while we were his enemies, while we were sinners, while we were ungodly and wicked people, and now he's made us his friends, well how much more certain are we that God's going to save us at the end now that we're his friends, if he did all that for us while we were his enemies? In the second half of chapter 5 he then explains how it is that on the basis of what one man has done, so many people can be saved, it's quite simple it's because we are are in the position that we were when we were in Adam not totally the same when we were in Adam descended from Adam those united to Adam we were condemned Adam's sin his one sin of rebellion and disobedience was imputed was given to all his descendants and we're guilty of the sin of Adam in the same way all those who are in Christ all those who are united to Christ experience the blessings that come from the death of Christ. Paul, at the end of that chapter, says that the more sin there was, the more of God's grace there was. And this would have led people to think in their minds, well, that means I should sin all the more, because then God will be all the more gracious. And so Paul now has a slight uh, parenthesis, a slight <coughs> detour, from his main line of argument to answer certain objections. His main line of argument really takes us straight through to the beginning of chapter 8. But he takes this detour to deal with these objections. Are you saying, people say, that we should sin all the more that grace may abound? By no means. He explains to us why in the first half of chapter 6. And we have four objections that Paul deals with. First one in chapter 6, verse 1. The second one in verse 15. Third one in chapter 7 and verse 7, and the fourth one in chapter 7 and verse 13. Paul deals with the first one, and he says, No, we don't continue to sin because we've died to sin. We've been united with Christ. Christ has died to sin. We've died to sin. What is true of Christ has become true of us. What then? Shall we sin? Because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. For two reasons. Firstly, because we are slaves. All men are slaves everywhere, without exception. The question is, who is our master? And for the non-Christian, their master is sin and the devil. For the believer, their master is righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. So which, which one do we obey? Whichever one we obey, that's our master. And if we obey sin, we're unconverted. We're still in our sins, we're on our way to hell. But if we seek to serve Christ if we seek to be righteous, if we seek to obey him, then he is our master. And the one who we serve shows who our master really is. So we cannot continue in sin because of this fact. He also says that <coughs> before we became Christians, we were under the law, we were married to the law. And the law stimulated within us sin. But now 
we've been freed from the law in Christ, now we've died to the law, we can be married to Christ, and being in Christ, being married to Christ, he can stimulate within our hearts good works. And last week we saw the question would be raised, well, you're saying that all the problems come from the law. So the law's the problem. Is the law sin? He said, no, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is sin. Sin working in the heart, bringing death. Now, if it hadn't been for the law, I'd never have known what sin was. But when I saw what the law said, then I saw what sin was, and then I saw it everywhere within me. There's nothing wrong with the law. The law is holy. The commandment holy, just, and good. So now we come to this last objection, and Paul's answer to it in verse 13 of chapter 7. Has then... What is good become death to me? Is it the law's fault? The law's good, yes. But is it still the law's fault that this happens? Is the law the cause of spiritual death? Paul goes on to explain, no, not the fault of the law. Something else. Now, in looking at this passage... We need to say this passage is one of great controversy. It's been a passage that over which there has been great controversy for many, many hundreds of years. And what I say this morning you might totally disagree with. In which case, I'm sorry. Perhaps you would like to give me your reasons and we can debate it afterwards. But let me begin by asking you this. Have you ever fe- felt depressed and downcast because you come to the end of a day you might be kneeling by your bed, you might be laying in bed, you're reviewing the day and you think, all those things today I've done wrong. How on earth could I have done those things? How could I have thought those things? How is it that still, saved as I am, redeemed by Christ, and I've been a Christian for so many months, so many years, how is it that I'm still living like this? How is it still that I sin and I'm depressed? It's distressing. How can I go on? I'm sure that there are some Christians who have gone so far as to take their own lives because they have become so distressed and so depressed because they continue to sin. And they don't like to sin. They love God. They want to do what is right. And they find they don't. I believe that Paul gives us the answer in this passage. Now in this passage, Paul is saying that on the one hand, he has this very problem. On the one hand, he looks at the law, the law is good, the law is wonderful, I want to keep the law, I want to do what is right, I want to please God. But on the other hand, while he acknowledges that all this is true, and good, and worthy, and should be obeyed, What does he find going on inside? He does the opposite. He keeps falling. He keeps stumbling. He keeps sinning. Now how can both be going on within the same person? How is it that on the one hand he can say, yes, this is what I want to do. But on the other hand, this is what he does. How can they both be going on within? Why is there this conflict? And there's this raging battle going on within his soul. Why is it? Well, let me very quickly give you the four views 
or perhaps I should say the four views of which I am aware. There are probably others, but these are the four that I have encountered during my course of study. First view is that Paul is here describing the conflict in the heart of the non-Christian. The non-Christian sees the law, says, yes, that's good. But the non-Christian, being God's enemy, doesn't do it. But if that were the case, how is it that Paul says, I love the law. The non-Christian hates God. The non-Christian wants nothing to do with God. The non-Christian doesn't have this problem. The non-Christian is quite content to look at the law and say, oh yes, that's good, but I couldn't care less whether I keep it or not. A non-Christian would not have this inward conflict. A non-Christian would say, yes, okay, that's good, okay, I don't live up to it, big deal. So that's the first view. The person is a non-Christian. I don't think it is tenable. Secondly, we have an interesting view, which is, in some ways it's very difficult to argue against, because the people that hold this, when you're debating it with them, they will come out with a statement which means you can't object to this. They say, this is the view that is held by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and how dare you suggest that the doctor has ever got it wrong. Well, I am one of those people who is quite prepared to say that the doctor sometimes got it wrong, and this is one of them. Some of the things he's very good. He has helped me tremendously in understanding these two chapters. But I think that this part, I think he misses the point that he made at the beginning of chapter 6. He is the one that helped me to see that there are these four questions. And yet he seems to have forgotten that there are these four questions being dealt with when he comes to this section of chapter 7. Also interesting to know, just to mention it as an aside, that as you read his book on the subject, um, <coughs> in his series on Romans, and you get to this part of, uh, of Romans, and you find that he has his first sermon, and he lays out basic principles and looks at it, and says, well, we must remember this, we must remember that. And you think, right, well, we're going to get the answer in the next chapter. What does he think? In the next chapter, he goes through more issues. You think, well, okay, but he's stretching out a bit, and then you get the third sermon, the fourth sermon, and the fifth sermon. And I think it's about seven or eight sermons before he actually tells you what his view is. Now, it has been suggested to me that the reason for this was, when he preached this series back in the late 1950s, this was a very, very hot issue. All Christians wanted to know, who is the man of Romans 7? And he found that when he got round to this part of scripture, more people came. And so he thought, well, I want them to hear and I want them to listen, so I won't give them the answer now, I'll make them think. And then the next week he found that more people came. And that the reason why he stretched it out so long was because he wanted more and more people to come, so that they would hear the truth. Now that is probably unfair, but that is a suggestion that I've heard. But just in case you do read Martin Lloyd-Jones on this subject, be prepared to have to wade through about seven or eight sermons before you find out what he thinks on this passage. But what he thinks is this. He thinks that this person is not regenerate. He also thinks that this person is not unregenerate. Now, if you don't know what unregenerate and regenerate means, it basically means someone who is regenerate is a Christian, and someone who is unregenerate is not a Christian. So he's saying this person is not a Christian. 
Well, this person is not a non-Christian. This person is almost in limbo. <coughs> this person is in the process of conversion. This person is under great conviction of sin. And he believes that a person who experiences such a degree of conviction of sin is guaranteed of conversion. I am rather wary of saying such a thing because you might find that you give comfort to someone who is under conviction of sin apart from the comfort of the gospel. You're basically saying to them, wonderful, you're under conviction, you're in this situation, you're going to be saved, don't worry anymore. You should never say that to anybody. You should say to someone who is in such a state, yes, you should worry, because your convictions might go. You might go back into a state of stupidity. You might never be converted. You must trust in Christ. And your only hope is to put your trust in Christ. There's a great danger, I believe, in this teaching. But that is what the doctor says. I, I did discover in my reading that there is at least one other person that holds to this. But uh, it's only those two people that I've discovered that hold to this view. This is a man who is in the process of conversion. I can't see it myself. Because Paul says at the end, uh, um, I thank God, verse 25, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, right, he said, I thank God I'm saved in Christ, and then, with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. The situation isn't changed. So he's not saying, thank God I'm saved now. The situation continues. The third view, and this is extremely popular. It is often known as the higher life view, or the Keswick view, or the perfectionist view. There are a number of different names that can be given to it. But basically people say that this passage is speaking about a carnal Christian. Carnal Christian is someone like that described in 1 Corinthians 3, someone who is a Christian but still living in the flesh, <coughs> or an immature Christian, a baby Christian, and they have yet to come into all the blessings of the spiritual life that are described in chapter 8. I used to hold to this view. I used to propound it very forcefully, but then I had never heard the alternative. And what they're saying is, here is a Christian who hasn't discovered that the Christian life is a life of faith. He's working hard to do what is right. And of course, what you should do is not work to do what is right, you just let go and let God. And God will do it all through you. And I think that it has led to many disasters in the lives of Christians. But instead of looking at the scriptures and seeing what the scriptures teach and obeying the scriptures, they said, well, I leave it all up to God. Instead of going out and doing things that they should do, seeking to do the will of God, they say, no, no, that's all God's responsibility. You say, but surely that's what we should do. Well, listen to this. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You are to do something. Work out your own salvation. Work at it. Do something. You go through many other of Paul's letters and the other apostles. This is what you must do. Because, for, it is God who works in you both to will and to work on behalf of his good pleasure. It's not we do all the work, neither is it God does all the work. 
We work because God works. It's both. And that's what this view denies. And it has led people to be complacent. It has led people to not concentrate on the teaching of the scriptures and to get on and do what the Bible has said. So the fourth view, and the one that I believe is the biblical view, is that Paul is here speaking about his own daily experience. He's talking about what he experiences every day, all the days of his life. And so this is not abnormal, this is normal Christian experience. And this indeed is the view that, at least in my reading, is held by the majority. And when I had to write an essay on this subject, I quoted from about 45 commentaries and books on the subject, and of those, about 30 said this was normal Christian experience. Uh, (coughs) And it was a very small proportion that took any of the others. The next in line would have been the carnal Christian, the... uh, the immature Christian viewpoint. But we need to ask ourselves, if this is the right view, how does this fit in with Paul's purpose, which is to answer this objection? How's that which is good become death to me? Well, it fits in like this. It shows that the problem is not the law. Remember, he's defending the law. He's saying the law isn't sin, because sin worked through the law, verses 7 to 12, Neither is sin, neither is the law, though good, the problem. The law is still good, the law is not a problem, the problem is sin. And he's saying, even within the heart of a believer, sin is still the problem. Because sin still works within the heart of the believer. And sin still causes the believer to trip up and fail. And if you ever find a Christian who says, oh, but that never happens to me, because I am now perfect, if they are a true Wesleyan Methodist, they might say, I have reached Christian perfection, perfect love, I never sin. Then you can find someone whose spiritual sensibilities have been dulled. No, we all know that we sin. We all regret it, I hope. We all grieve about it. We all wish that we didn't. And we know this conflict in our souls. So the problem is not the law. It's not the law that's causing this. It's not the law that's making us sin. It's sin. It's sin within our hearts. That's why you get warnings repeatedly through the scriptures about sin and its dangers. What do we get in 1 John chapter 2? My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. But, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. We can go back into the previous chapter. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Hebrews chapter 3 And verse 12, Beware, brethren, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. He's writing to Christians 
there is sin in your hearts, you have to subdue it and suppress it, otherwise you'll be deceived. And Paul's advantage here in Romans 7 is, he's not being deceived by sin, he knows it's there. But he finds it so easy to succumb. In some ways we're like an elastic band. You take an elastic band and you put two pencils inside and then you start twisting them in opposite directions. And it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Now you try keeping those two pencils the same distance apart as you twist and turn. Because what happens is that as the elastic band is twisted it pulls together. And you're getting it into greater tension and greater strain. And after you've twisted it a few hundred times you'll find it's almost impossible to hold it more than a couple of inches apart, if that. There's this enormous tension there. And you can carry on winding and winding. And what we do, when we are tempted by sin, we're being twisted by sin, put under tension, put under pressure. It's tempting us to do what is wrong. We put under tremendous pressure and we can't take it anymore and we sin. The Lord Jesus Christ never did that. The Lord Jesus Christ was under even greater tension than we ever are. And he never sinned. <coughs> Excuse me. So sin is present in the heart. It's not the, act, the, the fault of the law, which is good. And Paul recognises the law is good. It's not the law's fault. It's sin's fault. And sin's in my heart. And sin continues to dwell in my heart. Because as yet, we have this problem. We are not yet fully redeemed. Now just look for a moment at comments Paul makes about himself. Verse 18. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. That's chapters 1 to 3. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? His regard for the law. Verse 22, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But that's not what he said when he was describing his unconverted experience in verse 10. The commandment which was to bring life I found to bring death. He's not rejoicing in it there. It's gloom, doom, gloom and despondency. But here he rejoices in it. He delights in it. Because his desire is to please God. But within there is this raging battle between sin in his members, in his body, and what he desires to do in his mind and in his spirit. Now, very often Christians discover this. They've been converted a matter of hours or days or weeks. And suddenly there's this raging battle. And immediately they get into states of depression because they think, well, surely this shouldn't happen anymore normal Christian experience and what you find is that very often the more godly you become the older you become as a Christian the worse it gets not because you're becoming more sinful within it's because you're becoming more aware of sin when you're converted your standards might be saved here but as you learn more of God as you learn more of the scriptures your standards go up and up Enough, enough, enough. And what before you thought was okay, as your standards rise, you suddenly discover, well, it's not okay anymore. And you discover more and more corruptions within your soul. 
should bring you closer to Christ as you realise that you're not as good as you perhaps once thought you were. The godly person is much more aware of these things. Here we have an example of the already but not yet tension. What do I mean? We have already been saved by Christ. We have already been redeemed. When we come to Christ and put our trust in him, he washes away our sin, cleanses us from all guilt, makes us right with God and gives to us his perfect righteousness. So on the day of judgment, when we stand before God, God will look at us and say, you're a perfect person, as perfect as Jesus Christ. But we are not, in fact, as perfect as Jesus Christ. We merely have that robe of righteousness which Christ has given us. We are not yet actually perfect. So we've got the already. We are already declared to be righteous by God, but we are not yet actually righteous. And we will not be actually righteous until that day when redemption is completed. And when is redemption going to be completed? It's going to be completed when Christ returns to judge the world. What does Paul say down in verse 22 of chapter 8? Just turn over to the next chapter. For we know that the whole creation groans and labours with birth pangs together until now. And not only they, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Because we still suffer in our bodies. We still get illnesses and diseases. These are part of still being in the body. When Christ returns, he will change our mortal bodies into immortal bodies. We will receive new bodies. This is a glorious teaching of the scriptures that those of us that are suffering for whatever reason those of us that have like me minor complaints like my knees don't work properly like I broke my finger and I've now got this lump on the bone that makes writing unpleasant that I have various other things about me like a scar on my cheek on the day when Christ returns and raises me from the dead or changes me should he come before I die I will no longer have a scar, I will have no lump on the bone, I will have a perfect set of knees, I will be like Christ, perfect in every way. And this is the great comfort of the gospel for believers when they are suffering because of their bodies. But also, there is the suffering in the spirit that then will also go because it's our bodies that are presently causing the problem. In our spirits we delight to do what is right and to please God, but in our bodies, our bodies so often, we suffer from what seems to be a new syndrome. It's called TAT. Mentioned this morning on the radio. T-A-T-T. Tired all the time. We just don't want to do anything. Because the body, oh, it's so weary. But the Christian feels like that, but the Christian has to say to the body, get up, do what God has said, be righteous, let's go and tell people about Jesus Christ. But it's because our bodies have not yet been redeemed. 
We're waiting for their redemption. And that's why there's this conflict within. Because our spirits have been renewed, but our body is still waiting for the renewal. Now is this indeed what Paul is teaching here? Well, I believe, if you look at verse 25, it's quite clear. As I said, Paul says that this is the continuing experience. This battle, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This law still operates, even after he has made this wonderful declaration he is saved in and through Christ but it's not yet it's still to come it's a hope laid up in the future when Christ returns well let's quickly look now at some applications of this we have these various views I've explained to you why I believe the one that I do Paul has been putting in its right position the function of the law of God there are various teachings about the use of the law of God. Some people say that we must keep it in its totality. Some people say that it is completely gone. And you get every position in between. I believe that what Paul is teaching us here, as well as elsewhere, is that the law has completely gone. That is the law as the covenant made with Israel which included not just the Ten Commandments, but also the prohibition on sowing different kinds of seed on your soil, and the prohibition on wearing Marks and Spencer's shirts. Leviticus 19.19 says, We shall not wear clothing of mixed fibre. It includes all these things. And Paul is here saying, when I look at the law, the covenant that God made with Moses, I see that it's a wonderful thing. But he can't attain to it. He's been talking earlier about the law. And he said, we've been divorced. Not, sorry, we've not been divorced from the law. We've died to the law. We were married to it. Now we've died to it. So we're not bound to it anymore. And so we don't look back to the law and say, well, what does the law say? We might look at the law and say, here are principles. One principle is that you need to have one day's rest a week. You should not work seven days a week. That's a principle. It's not a law. It's good sense, because that's the way God's made us. Why is it that uh, mixed fibre clothing was forbidden? Well, we don't know. Perhaps there could have been a reaction cause on the skin, and so God is keeping us from being uncomfortable. Or it could be God is teaching in and through this that we must be pure. We mustn't be mixed in with others, in with the unconverted. We must keep ourselves separate and pure and godly. So there are many principles. You can go back to the law and extract principles. But we don't have to keep them anymore. We're delivered from it. We're freed from it. The law no longer has a place. We've died to it. And if we keep going back to the law, we'll suffer even more because the law merely stimulates sin. Or rather, it's not the law that stimulates sin. Sin takes the law and stimulates sin within. The law does us no good. Now he reveals sin and gives sin an opportunity to work with it. We've been delivered from the law in order that we might follow the law of Christ. And the law of Christ does not forbid polyester and cotton shirts. The law of Christ does not say, you must do this, you must do that, you must do the other, as the Old Testament law did. It was very detailed. 
as to what you could and couldn't do. The law of Christ gives principles. There are certain things, yes, you must not do. You must not be an idolater. You must not be a murderer. You must not be an adulterer. You must not be certain things. These are plain. These are clear. These are part of God's eternal law that is always true. But then there are grey areas. The law in the past would have come down and said, right, this is black, this is white. But it's not like that today. Under the new covenant, it's not like that at all. We now have a much greater freedom than we had in the past. There are no detailed regulations. There are principles to apply and to follow. I'll give you some examples. What can I wear? And some people would say, have said for a long time, but less so today, women should not wear trousers. Women should not wear jeans. Why not? Where are the principles? Women should have long hair and men should have short hair. Well, where are the principles? The principles that teach these things. Now, I'm not advocating one or the other. I'm just throwing these things out as examples to make you think. What can we drink? Are we allowed to drink wine, champagne, whiskey, brown ale and such like? Or not? Does the Bible teach that we should be teetotal? I would say the answer is no. But it teaches principles. You must think, you must say, is this good for me? Am I a former drunkard? If I drink, I might fall back into my own drunken ways. Here is someone who is a converted drunkard. If he sees me drinking, that might cause him to fall back into his own drunken ways. And so, on the basis of those principles, you might say, I will forego the pleasures of the grape and the hop for the sake of him or for my own sake. Not because it's wrong in and of itself. There's no prohibition upon alcohol in the New Testament or the Old. But I may take the principles that for my good and for their good I will abstain. Who can I marry? The Bible gives us principles. It tells us, do you want to marry or not? You're free to choose. Well, who should it be? It gives you the principles. It should be a godly man or godly woman. What church should I go to? And the Bible gives you the principles there as well. So many people that I meet, they say, you might not believe this, but God told me to go to that church, a godless church that doesn't believe anything. But God told me to go there. I say, you're right, I don't believe you. You show me where God's told you that. There are no principles in the scriptures that would encourage you or tell you to go to a church that doesn't believe the Bible. They're very opposite. If someone said, God has told me not to go to the Quinter Church, I'd say, well, I don't believe that either. And if they said, God has told me to come to the Quinter Church, I'd also say, I don't believe that. But if you want to say, according to biblical principles, this is where to come, because this is where the Bible is believed and preached, then I'd accept that. But I wouldn't say, you must come to the Quinter Church, because God is telling you to. I'd say, look, here are the principles. Put the principles into practice. And that's what the New Testament repeatedly does. It gives us principles to follow. But even having principles to follow, we find still there are battles within. And we can get discouraged. We still fail. And John has said in 1 John 1, 8-10, which I've quoted already, if we deny that we're sinners, we're fools. We call God a liar. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me ask you, do you know this battle within you about which Paul speaks? 
Do you know this distress, this unhappiness, because you fail to do what you know you should? Don't worry. It's the common experience of all Christians. But if you sit there and say that I don't know any of this battle with you, I don't know any conflict within my soul, then I will have to ask you very seriously this question. Are you a Christian? If this is the common experience of all Christians, and you say you don't know this, then how can you be a Christian if you don't have the common experience of all Christians? But if you are a Christian, take comfort, because you're not alone. Everybody else has this battle to varying degrees. <clears throat> and it's effective for you to bring you closer to Jesus Christ, closer dependence upon him. It should give you a longing for eternity. A longing for that day when Christ will redeem your body as he has already redeemed your soul. And you will look forward more to that eternal kingdom that Christ has laid up for those who believe. And it should make you seek by all means and in every way to obey him and to seek to glorify him. And you will grieve all the more because you fail to do what you most desire but do not use it as an excuse for not seeking to do those things. Use it rather as an excuse for trying the harder. By God's grace, in the power of God's Spirit, to do these things, that we might become more like Christ in a wicked world and testify to his goodness, grace and mercy. And then God willing, we will look next week into chapter 8 and begin to see more about the work of God in the soul and the life in the spirit.